Uh, we're going to be in chapter 3 of Luke. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, your patience with us. We thank you, Lord, that we can come to a time like this and not, not feel like we have to guess or, or grope, but, Lord, that we can, we can depend upon you, that we can, by faith, listen to what you have to say. And so, Lord, that's what we ask. We ask for your wisdom now that you would be honored and glorified. We thank you that you do speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so if you're just walking in, I, I went ahead and just got started before everybody got in here because we're getting off to a late start and we've got a lot to cover. So I'm hoping to be able to facilitate some discussion. I, I do have it planned out, but because we get, I mean, it was really tight here to get started on time. So uh, there may not be as much discussion as we'd like to have, but we'll try to have some. So here in chapter 3, remember, we've divided up the book into into uh, four sections. The first section, and this will be the last class in that section, dealing with an, the introduction of Christ. I think Luke is, is laying out some things, wanting to solidify who Christ is uh, before he goes on to the ministry of Christ. So with that in mind, in chapter 3, uh, we, uh, we begin with this. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was tetriarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetriarch of the region of Aturia and Trachonitis. Uh, you know, I practiced this all week. Uh, Trachonitis and uh, Lin oh, I did this one too. Anyway, help. That's it. Thank you, Licinius was tetriarch of Abilene. I had Abilene down. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness, and he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching and baptizing of, the, of repentance for forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every, every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough road smooth, and all the flesh will see the salvation of God. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him one who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they also said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force, or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. Now while the people were in a state of expectation, and all were wondering in their hearts about John, as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them all, 
As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear, uh, to, to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barns, but he will burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his wife, his brother's wife, and because of all the wickedness, all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added these to them all. He locked John up in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. Now, he goes on through the, uh, the rest of the genealogy, and something interesting about Eli is that he's the common, uh, he's the common person or denominator with the two genealogies of Mary and Joseph. And so then we go on through the rest of the genealogy, and we get to verse 38. The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So, the, to start off with, yeah, the, some of the background of what's going on here, it's really interesting to me anyway. The, the, um, the, the people that are, are listed there in the first couple of verses. We have, uh, we have Caesar, and this is in particular Tiberius. Tiberius, I won't go into any detail with it, but suffice it to say, this man was perverted and sick. Uh, I, I just I don't want to go through this stuff. I just don't want, I just don't want to tell you. What, but just that's enough to know that this guy was really messed up, and he's in charge of everything. He uh, even turns over control for a while uh, to to his his right hand man, and he goes off and just just parties and, and, and just gross immorality on his own little private island. And then while that's going on, uh, we know Pilate, uh, is, uh, he becomes the governor, and Pontius Pilate. And he was actually appointed by Caesar's right-hand man. Now Caesar's right-hand man hated the Jews. So Pontius Pilate was known for his, his ruthlessness against the Jews and trying to eradicate their, their belief system. And again, it just takes forever to go into all of this. But then, it's during this time that, that uh, Caesar takes over again. He takes the power back from his, his, his number two. And so now people are thinking what happens during the trial of Jesus, the reason he is trying to find some kind of compromise is because he's possibly afraid of Caesar now, that, that he could lose his position, that Tiberius would, uh, would, 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 uh, would treat him harshly. So that's why that's going on there. So, so it's, kinda, it's just all politics and it's all twisted. It's just sick. But then we go on and he lists... Um, he lists uh, Herod, and this is particularly Herod um, Antipas. He was the son of Herod the Great. 
he was one of the sons. And the reason he's called a patriarch is because when Herod the Great died, they divided up his realm among some of the sons. Not all of them, just some of them, four of them. And so it means he's the, he's the leader of a, of, a, of a a fourth or a quarter of what there was of the, of the, of the kingdom. And that means, that's why he gets named Tetriarch. So uh, he, was, he wasn't a great fellow either. Uh, it, it, was, it was really twisted there. Uh, later on in the chapter, we know that Herodias is his wife, and, and, uh, and John's giving him, is really getting in his face about her. And the, the, the deal with her is that she is not only his wife, but she's also his, and I had to read these things over and over again to figure out all this that's going on, but she is also his niece, to his, uh, who is the daughter of his half-brother. Not only is he, she his wife and niece, but also former sister-in-law to his half-brother. And what happens there is that he, he goes back to, uh, to Rome to visit his brother. And it's there that, that um, Herodias seduces him. And they decide to divorce their spouses so they can get married. And it looks like all she was about was just, just continuing looking for a way to rise up in, uh, in, with, with power. So this is what's going on, and then we go on to the, the, the two uh, high priests. Now, what's going on there? It's, it's interesting the way it reads, in the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, in verse 2. That shouldn't be. You know, two high priests at the same time, what's going on there? Well, Rome appointed, at this time, Rome is appointing who the high priest will be. And so Annas was the high priest, and he was respected apparently among the Jews as the high priest, but something happens, and he's not playing, he's, he's not playing ball with the Roman government. So what they do is they appoint Caiaphas to become the high priest, who is Annas's son-in-law. See, this is getting really weird, isn't it? And so while... Annas is the, uh, Caiaphas is the official high priest. The Jewish community still considers Annas to be the high priest. Okay, so now I'm throwing all this out so that we, we get a picture of what's going on. Everything is wacky. It's screwed up. There's no security here. Does it, 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 there's easy application there for us today, isn't there? You know, I mean, as, you know, we, you know, when we're, not in Sunday school and, and right after the service, and you know, especially the last couple of months, we've had nothing. But you know, what's dominated our conversation is that the world has been turned upside down as far as Americans are concerned. It's just twisted. It doesn't make sense. And it's, it's amazing to me that the, the, it's, nothing changes. And when we, and we see here that God has something to say to his people in the midst of all this confusion and this twistedness, really this sickness. And so I think it's really applicable to us and it's really exciting to, to work through this chapter and hear what the Lord has to say. So what I want us to do then is to, to look at just how Christ is presented in this chapter. Who is Jesus Christ? Remember, that's our first section, the four sections we have the book divided into. This section being the, the introduction 
of the Son of Man. Who is the Son of Man? Well, first of all, we see in verse 4 that he is described as the Lord. Make ready the way of the Lord. Now, here's a title that we use. I know as a child, I've heard the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. And it really took me years to understand what that meant, even after becoming a believer, to really understand what the title Lord means. And just, to, just the official title, official definition would be like this. It's a, a title of God and for Christ, one who exercises supernatural authority over mankind, Lord, ruler, one who commands. Now, the... Um, in Revelation, in chapter 17, verse 14, it reads like this. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, so the Lamb being Christ, because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. Those who are with Him are all called and chosen and faithful. He is Lord of lords. Now, if, I, if you would have asked me early on in my walk with the Lord for the first 13 years, if you would have asked me, who is Christ to you? I would say, He is my Lord and my Savior. I mean, I was taught that was the right answer. He is my Lord and my Savior. But then if you would have asked me, now give me a definition of Lord and give me a definition of Savior, and it would have been more correct on my behalf if I would have said it like this, Jesus Christ is my Savior and my Savior. See, I could not get past that. He saves me, He saves me, He saves me. And He's my Lord, which means He saves me. But never a real understanding that being Lord means He owns me. I've been bought with a price. I'm no longer my own. That he is the one who calls the shots. He is the one who's in control. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. We had uh, years ago, and uh, I don't think really, well, years ago, we had a staff person at his hill uh, who was the assistant director. And uh, he really, uh, he and our director, uh, everybody knows who that is. I won't say it because this is being recorded. But anyway, he and our director, the, the, the staff meetings were really interesting for years because there was nothing but confrontation almost in every meeting where the assistant director would fight with our director, demanding his way. And it, it was, it, it got to where it was, the, these meetings were not fun to go to. You knew it was going to happen. Uh, and at one point, the assistant director came to my office after having a meeting with our director. And he starts to cry. And he says, I just got into it with our director. And he says, I think I might get fired. And I looked at him and I thought, well, you should have been years ago. And I also thought it's not going to happen because I know our director and he is, he is probably the most patient person I've ever worked with. He could not, he couldn't come to terms with the fact that he was not in charge, but the director was. As a matter of fact, he couldn't come to terms with, facts that, with the fact that he was not in charge of his own area that he was assigned to, but the director was. Because the director is the boss. It's, do we understand that about Jesus? 
Do we understand that He is our Lord? Any thoughts with that? Jesus as Lord. So what do we do with that? How, how, how do we, and just fighting and grappling over that, what, what do we come to? How do we reconcile that? You know, freedom, yet being His. He's the Lord. Any ideas with that? Pardon me? Lots of prayer. I agree. Yeah, we need, we need Him. We need to go. And the thing with prayer is, is, is it's a time for us to come in line with Him, right? Not for us to talk Him into... <laughs> into how we want things to be. But, you know, what greater freedom is there to be His? You see, our freedom is what? It's free to live the way we were created to live. See, we're in bondage before we become His. And, and, and what's helpful for me is that when, to know that I have been freed, you know, like the children of Israel, the picture of salvation that we get with them, they have been freed from slavery. They have been freed from bondage to live in the land of rest, Canaan. And just seeing that picture helps me think it like this. I have been freed from my bondage. And what does that mean? I have been freed. My salvation, I have been freed from me. I am freed from me that I might live in him that I might live the way I was created to live, to live out the image of God as the image of God is living in me. Okay, any other thoughts? Yes, ma'am. Okay, let's keep going. Um, so we see that Jesus is Lord also in this passage. In, uh, in verses 15 to 17, we see that Jesus is Christ. Another title for Jesus that, you know, if you're like me, you just grew up hearing that Jesus is Christ, Jesus Christ. And not really... Uh, one of the guys in, in Colorado as well, just to ask these believers, you know, people, kids that have grown up in the church, now young adults, and just asking them, well, what does this word mean? And they look at you, well, I, well, I don't know. And I go, I know. 
I know what you mean because, you know, I didn't need, we just use words that we hear and we know they're right because, you know, we hear Charlie saying them from the pulpit. So, of course, it's right, you know. So, but, but you know, as we, we grow up with what, what do we mean when we say certain things? Well, what does that mean, Christ? Any, what comes to mind? Israel, your work with the, with the Jews, what comes to your mind when you hear Christ? Messiah. Thank you. So, Messiah. Okay, and here's, here's the definition from, from Erdman's. It's basic, in its basic sense, the term Messiah refers to a person who has been consecrated to a high office by ceremonial anointing with oil. In the ancient world, priests and kings were so anointed a practice reflected at 1 Kings 19.16 and Psalm 133, verse 2. So it was common in the day for both kings and priests to be anointed, to be chosen for a certain position. Now that's really interesting when we look at it within the context of the Jewish nation because the Jews up to this point, have never had one person fulfill the role of both priest and king. There was a king who tried to do that. Charlie, what was his name? Uzziah, thank you. So Uzziah, you know, he was a great king till his heart became proud. And then he goes into the temple to function both as priest and king. The, the priesthood comes in to tell him, you can't do this. And in his arrogance, he says, yes, I can. And, and immediately, he breaks out in leprosy. And then they rush him out because he's unclean. He can't be in there anymore. He can't be in the temple anymore. They rush him out. He can't even go back to his palace. He has to go live in an annex until he's, and his son takes over for him until, until he's done rotting away because he thought he could be priest and king. But turn with me to the book of Hebrews in uh, chapter 7. And the writer here just lays out the picture of Christ that's found in the man Melchizedek, the Old Testament uh, character Melchizedek. Bless you. Verse 1, chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then also King of Salem, which is King of Peace. Okay, so he is King of Salem. That's Jerusalem, okay? So he's King of Jerusalem. This is the city that he actually rules in, and it means peace. And he also, it also says here that he was the King of Righteousness, so we see that he was, a, he was the king who reigned in peace, who was righteous, and then also uh, he was, well, we don't have time to go to all of this, but if we go back to, uh, to Genesis, we find that he is, in that point, he is the, the, a, a priest and king. So a picture of Christ being both priest and king. This is incredible. Christ is, Christ is the man. <laughs> you know, he is, he is the head. He is in charge. 
in, in the book of Hebrews, we see that he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, the place of authority. We see that he is uh, in chapters, uh, in Hebrews, in chapters 5 and, uh, and 7, that he is the high priest who, who ministers perpetually. Yeah. So are, are you saying, or maybe, maybe you're just getting to it, the, because he's priest and king and that hasn't happened, that sets him apart as the Christ? Yes, he is. The, the one that has been spoken of. Right, and see the picture that has been given to the, to the society at this time is the only people who were ever anointed would be the priest or the king. But now we have one who is Messiah, who is both priest and king. And so he is the anointed. He is the one that is set aside. This is the man that the, that the crowd is wondering about in this, in this passage. They're wondering if John is Christ, if John is Messiah. You know, this, and remember the background here, this twistedness that they're living in. And they're wondering, is this the man? Is this the one who comes and solidifies, makes everything right? Any thoughts with Jesus as Messiah, as Christ? They're, they're look, yeah, they are looking for him. They are. And that's something, too. That's a good point because, again, in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 11, we find out that that was their faith. Their faith was, in, was, was, was an expectation looking for Christ, looking for Messiah. Uh, it even, it, even now, it just says it in black and white with, when it comes to, to Moses in chapter 11, that he was actually looking for Christ. So they knew that the Messiah was supposed to be priest and king, but before that, they never had a Messiah because they never had anybody that was both. Right, I believe so. And again, the, the writer of, of Hebrews, being a Jew, is describing Christ in that way as priest and king. So it's, a, it's really interesting you know, to, to read through chapter 11 and look at all these people who live by faith and find that their faith is in the same direction as our faith. It was in Christ. And it, that's why they're called saints, Old Testament saints. But then chapter 11 goes on and, and explains that they didn't know the fulfillment of this until we knew the fulfillment of this. But anyway, that's Hebrews, not Luke. Okay, so let's keep going. So we see that Jesus is being presented as Lord, as Christ. And now in verses 22 and 38, we see that he's presented to us as the Son of God. Uh, again, it's been a while since we read it, so in, at the end of verse 22, I'll just read the whole one. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. You are my beloved Son. And in the last verse of the genealogy, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Why is this such an important title? that Christ be the Son of God. Any thoughts with that? Because we say He's the Son of God. Okay, now, you beat my next question. I was going to say, you know, why do we say Son of God? What does it mean? He's divine, yes. When we say that He's Son of Man, what do we mean? That He's half man? 
What do we mean when we say he's son of man? Okay, so he's 100% man. What do we mean when we say he's son of God? Yeah. That this is God. You see, this is so important. Remember what Philip asked um, Jesus in the upper room in John chapter 14. Show us who? Show us the Father. That's enough for us. Why would he want that? Why would he want, to do the, why would he want Jesus to show him the Father? You see, we go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. And, and I'm a firm believer that if you don't, if we have to have a really good understanding of the first three chapters of the Bible to accurately understand the rest of Scripture. We go back to the foundation. We go back to the beginning there, and we see that God is, is creating man how? In His image. Okay, so mankind is, when, when man is seen, God should be seen. But how is it possible for God to be seen in man? Well, Genesis 2, 7 says, And the Lord God formed man from dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. You see, man doesn't live out the image of God until the image of God lives out of the man. It's impossible for dirt to live out the image of God. Only God can live out the image of God. And so it was always intended for God to be seen in the man that God live in the man. And so now here, all these years later, Philip, I can almost hear the desperation in his question. Show us God. And then what did Jesus say? Do you remember his answer? When you see me, the man, you see who? You see the Father, God. For the first time since the fall of man, God is seen in the man. And there, there's incredible hope here. He is the Son of God. Even the enemy, I think, look over in, uh, in chapter, um, chapter 4, the temptation of Christ. In chapter 4 and in verse 9, uh, Satan says this, And he led him to Jerusalem, and had him, st- oh, wait a minute, is that where I want to be? I think. Okay, no, I'm sorry, verse 3. The devil said to him, chapter 4, verse 3, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, that's interesting, the phrase, if you are the Son of God. This, is not a, this phrase is not a supposition, but it's an affirmation. In other words, it could be translated like this. In the view of the fact that you are the Son of God, tell these stones to be turned into bread. Yeah, yeah. Since you're the Son of God, do this. So you see, it's, it's interesting. It's been observed that even Satan has to acknowledge that Jesus is God. And so an incredible picture that we have in Scripture in several places where Jesus is seated and in Acts standing at the right hand of God. Standing in that place of authority. Colossians 2, 10 says, 9 and 10 says this, For in Him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. 
and in him you have been made complete. And then it finishes like this, and he is the head of all rule and authority. Jesus is God. He exercises, we see in Jesus him exercising, a man exercising the power of God because he is God. Any thoughts with that before we go on? Jesus is the Son of God. Okay. Well then, let's move on to the next point, the proclamation concerning Jesus Christ in verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. Okay, the word gospel here is evangelizo, and it means good news. He preached the good news to the people. The same word evangelizo is used in chapter 1, verse 19, telling Zacharias that he brings, the angel brings Zacharias this good news, and it's actually translated as good news there. So in the context then, the good news would be the proclamation of Christ, the announcement of Christ. John is like a, he's like the herald who's, who goes before the king and he's, he's proclaiming out, you know, letting everybody know that the king is coming. Here comes the king. Make way for the king. You know, that kind of thing. That's, what, that's the ministry of, of John the Baptist. And so what would be the proper response to this good news? And we find it two times in verse 4 and in verse 8. What's the proper response, or what is to be the proper response to this proclamation of good news? Do you see the word in those two verses? Repetition equals emphasis. So something's being emphasized here. Same word in verse 4 and in verse 8. Of chapter 2. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, yeah, but... Everybody's thinking you're an idiot, okay. No, 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 I'm sorry. Yeah, we are in chapter 3. I had, uh, never mind. Do you see the word? The word is repentance. See, this is the proper response to the good news. This is what John is saying must be a reality in verses 4 and 8. And then he goes on and describes what repentance looks like. When they ask him, what should we do? He says, listen, if you've got, if, if you've got spare clothes... Share it. If you've got extra food, share it. If you're a tax collector, stop stealing. If you're, uh, if you're a soldier, stop extortion. And he just goes on. And it's a, so anyway, repentance is interesting. Uh, here is the definition for repentance. Uh, and I'm sure you've heard something similar to this before. But to change one's way of life as the result of a complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. So in other words, it's an outward change as a result of an inward change. So... You know, James says it like this, show me your faith without the works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You see, the works are the result of faith and not the way to faith. So repentance is, repentance is the proper response to the proclamation of this good news, which is Jesus Christ. But we know that Herod does not respond properly. And just what was his response? We see his denial in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 3, and I'm sure it's chapter 3. How he responds to this good news. Now, Herod's lifestyle 
did not agree with the good news. I can identify with this. It's so easy for me to read through this passage, and the last person I want to identify with is Herod. But I can. To, you know, so often the good news of Jesus Christ does not agree with what I want. It does not agree with how I behave. I demonstrated it to my family yesterday. You know, I, I hate this, and I can't believe how many times I use this as an example. I'm, I'm, I'm like Jeff, short-term memory loss. But we're going to choir practice last night, and we're about to turn off the highway. And uh, one of my daughters was getting car sick because of all the hills and the curbs, so I slowed down. What, the guy behind me didn't appreciate me going slow. And I was going fast enough, but I agree. I, you know, If it was up to me, I'd have been going a lot faster. Well, then I actually had the, the audacity to stop with my turn signal on to get off the road. And he laid on the horn and decided to go around me on the shoulder of the road. Now, just to demonstrate my righteousness to you, I swerved my car over onto the shoulder of the road. And Arlene said, thank you very much. Arlene is constantly reminding me that Jesus can drive a car. <laughs> it, the good news doesn't always agree with me, guys. And that's just a, you know, kind of a funny little example, but I could go with others, and you can too. The good news does not always agree with us. Why? I think the, the description of Herod in verse 19 is sobering. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, and we talked about that issue, his brother's wife, and because of all the wickedness. The word wicked there, it means a state of being sickly or diseased. Because of all the wickedness. In Psalm 37, verse 38, it says this, The, pros the posterity of the wicked will be cut off. In Isaiah 57, 21, it says, There is no peace for the wicked, says God. This is a horrible place to be. It's a trap. And it's one that we entangle ourselves in. And we're so messed up, we don't want to get out of it. And so what does he do? In verse 20, Herod also added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. He locked him up. The word there for locked, uh, it, a part of a definition means to shut up, and that's actually how the King James in the authorized version translated. And when I read that, oh my goodness, it just applies to my heart. That so often my response to the good news of Jesus Christ is I want him to shut up. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to abide by it. I want my way. This is common for man in the flesh. In chapter 7 of Acts, when Stephen is on trial, and they're about to kill him, and this being the most intense moment of his life, he looks up to heaven and he says this. In verse 56 of chapter 7, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, I see Jesus, and he's in charge. But they cried out with a loud voice, and they covered their ears, and they rushed at him with one impulse. 
and they go on and murder him. You know, how do we want to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ? Can we identify with the tax collector and the soldier, with those that were not looked on favorably in society, and want to respond? Or do we want to identify with Herod, the man that's got the power, and just tell Jesus to shut up? We had a student one time at his hill who was, without a doubt, the biggest bully I had to deal with as the dean of students. He was a big boy. I mean big. He was a bully. He'd play basketball with us and push people around. He wouldn't give people the ball, especially girls. And one day, he came into my office after one of our classes. He just poured his heart out to me, and he entrusted his life to Christ. He had, never, he had never put his faith in Jesus. And something incredible, miraculous happened. He became the biggest teddy bear we've ever had in the student body. Playing basketball, he would pass the ball to everybody. He would make sure the girls, even though some of them didn't know how to play, he made sure they had the ball. And if they shot and didn't even hit the backboard, he'd say, it's okay, you'll get it next time. Here, try it again. He was a local student. He would come up to visit for years after that. And when I would tell that story to the, the student bodies after that, and then I would tell them his name because they knew him, you could see shock on people's faces in, in the chapel because they could not believe that this guy had ever been a bully because Jesus had changed him. And see, guys, that's, that's what we get. Who is Jesus? Is Jesus, is he really is he the Lord of your life? Is he Messiah? Is he the anointed one? Is he the priest and king? Is he God? Can we sing the hymn and mean it? Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter, and I am the clay. Mold me. Make me after thy will while I am, and we hate this word, waiting, yielded and still. Any thoughts? Okay, I told you that was, go ahead. Baptism was not something new to them. It was something that they had seen. I think the best, uh, the, the, the most helpful explanation that I've been given for his baptism compared to the, the believer's baptism, the church, the baptism of the church, is that, um, actually it was Warren Wiersbe that said it. He said that uh, Acts 19, 1-5 explains John's baptism looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, while Christian baptism looks back to the finished work of Christ. Both requiring faith. It's interesting because they asked him, you know, are you the Christ and his response? He says, I am the baptizer of the Father. So it looks yeah. like the picture of that. Exactly. But somebody will come, and I was thinking that it, it starts with repentance. Right. Right, a baptism of repentance. But then the recreation in Christ follows by Jesus, Christ follows. Right. So it's just an interesting progression. Of right. 
remember too that the, that Paul came across some people in Acts. Charlie covered it just a few weeks ago that had been baptized in the baptism of John, but hadn't heard nothing of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So there's there's a picture given to us, but the reality of this comes at the baptism with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Okay. What's well, late? Thanks for your patience. Sorry, I, I told you, I warned you, we had a lot to cover. But uh, let's pray and, uh, and get out of here. So would somebody like to lead us in prayer? Okay, Jeff, thanks.